Tonight I'd like to share with you some reflections around framing this practice that we're doing together, which we can boil down to this practice of being present, or what I like to say, just the willingness to be present, that we're here together to just do that one simple thing, the willingness to be present, which I like in the sense of, um, I don't even have to be present. I just have the willingness to be present, which is very helpful because maybe today at the end of the day, you've hopefully by now find, found that you might want to be present, but it doesn't always happen. So then it really clarifies where I put my attention. Oh, I just have to have the willingness to be present. Just this one thing. So I want to share a little bit about this tonight, frame it uh, a little bit more in depth, just this willingness to be present with our experience. And a little bit about why, maybe why we, we engage in this practice and how to hold this practice. Right. So what are we doing? This willingness to be present, framing that a little bit more. A little bit of a why and then uh, how to hold all this. When the, when the Buddha spoke, the Buddha, you could say, of early Buddhism spoke about this path, uh, he was very clear about the direction it was going in. It was going in the direction of freedom, of awakening. And there's a definition that the Buddha gives in, uh, in early Buddhism of, of freedom, which really is quite simple, but um, a lot of times we can't connect with it. He said, said, freedom is simply a heart or a mind that's free of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's a heart that's not encumbered by those, those, uh, those qualities of reactivity in the mind. But when I hear that, sometimes it doesn't give me some kind of visceral sense of that or, or what that is. So I want to acknowledge that. Sometimes it, it feels like just, just a bunch of words. And I think there's many ways of expressing this freedom. And I just want to give maybe one direction or one flavor that may or may not fit for you. And this comes from uh, a poem by W.S. Merwin called River of Bees. And it's a striking poem because it's, it, it takes place in a dream. And here, here the poet finds himself in this dream. And, and uh, it's this process in the dream of, of, of going from room to room in this dream, kind of asking this question of how shall I live? Or sometimes asking the, the question of what shall I say, or we could interpret this of how shall I be in the world? These questions around what it is to be a human being. How do we live our lives? And then at the end of the poem, he comes to this final door. And these are the last words of the poem. And he sees on the door, he says, on the door, it says what to do to survive. But we were not born to survive, only to live. On the door, it says what to do to survive, but we were not born to survive, only to live. 
There's so many different directions we can go with Merwin's words. First of all, for me, something so true that I wasn't born to survive. That's the inevitability of this human predicament. I'm going to die at some point. And yet it feels like I can get so wrapped up, so lost in this quality of merely surviving. And I feel like so much of what I've been taught and what I've inherited and my habitual patterns that really don't serve me are around this kind of mere surviving. And yet what I find about this practice is it opens up a different door. The door to actually live my life. And I think there's, that's, to me, that's the promise of this path. And yes, the, you know, the narrative of, of surviving can be really powerful. But I think in this context, to, to see if we can understand Merwin's words in this deeper way of to actually open up the space to live, to touch the activity of living, not being lost, merely lost in our day-to-day grind. And I think it fits so well with the frame that Matthew gave us last night of, of when I can start to, quote-unquote, live, to step out of mere survival, there's a, there is a, a kind of dignity that comes with that, that fills me. And also a humility when I face uh, the fragility of this life of mine. And I feel like on this retreat, we have the elements to begin to touch this activity of living. It reminds me of a, a friend of mine. I remember she shared with me there's basically 30 years of her life she spent not wanting to live. Difficult life. Maybe some of you can relate to that. Maybe not 30 years, but maybe you've gone through those times where things get so difficult that we're just going through the motions of living and not really doing that. So this is her predicament. And she said the, the thing that allowed her to gradually move out of that space into actually being here for her life were, she said, just two conditions. Being present in the natural world. And so transformative. Not like some dramatic experience that she had at one point, but just the gradual introduction of those two qualities in her life and, and allowing those to move her life in a different direction. And we have those qualities here. Have you noticed today what a beautiful place we're in? It's just so striking. It's the thing that's uh, moved me so much. It's, it's like, it's funny. It's like, I sometimes forget, I, I, I come here so often, but then when I come here again, it's like, oh yeah, and there's this. And to feel it viscerally is so different than just the memory of it. And for me, it pulls me into being present. And maybe some of you have noticed that how the natural world does that for us. It calls to me to be present. And at the same time, we're here. We're here to 
learn this, you could say this technology of being present together. And I, I want to acknowledge, before I go any further, just this first day on retreat. Just because uh, for some of us, maybe not for everyone, but for some people, the first day on retreat can be really challenging. You know, the sleepiness, the aches and pains, getting used to a new environment. A lot of times, maybe not sleep so well the first night. So it can be a real slog <laughs> through it all. So I remember, I think it was on this retreat, we, uh, on our first, it was the first retreat we, we all taught here, um, we, there was some feedback that was given to us about the retreat, about um, some constructive feedback about the retreat, which I found uh, quite interesting. They said, you know, the retreat was great, but if you could take away the first day, it would have been perfect. <laughs> it's like, wow, it's so true sometimes, right? <laughs> the first day can just be a pain. So I, I want to acknowledge that for those of you who might have been experiencing that. I know for me, you know, the, the very first retreat I did was a, a weekend retreat. It was a, a Zen retreat. And um, it was so excruciatingly painful that I swore to myself afterwards that I would never meditate again. <laughs> I, I honestly did that. It was, it was tough. I was, it was at a time in my life that Everything was tough, but boy, it was tough. And yet the strange thing was, even though it was so challenging, I, I, it was the first time I think I, I, I touched something real about living. And that's what propelled me onwards. Luckily, I think I forgot about the pain, <laughs> how miserable I was, but there was something real about it. It was like, wow, I haven't actually touched living before, and here it is. This is really something so powerful. Again, it wasn't a pleasant experience. <laughs> but, uh, so I, I, again, th there can be that, uh, the mess of it all and the challenge of it all, and yet. So a little bit about the why, this, uh, uh, to really touch living. And then what are we doing? here and I uh, shared with you just to keep it simple just just if I can remember one thing if you can remember one thing the one thing of just the willingness to be present it's so nice to have our to-do list so simple don't you think like for the next for the next few days that's all you need to do that's the only thing you need to have on your list it's, it's really that simple I'm not saying it's easy but it's really that simple <laughs> And I love short lists because you know, it's funny that I got involved in Buddhism because there's so many lists that you have to memorize. <laughs> so I try to boil things down to smaller lists. So how to, how to get a, a feeling sense of this? And I'd, I'd like to give you an image of what it is to have this willingness to be present, to make this process of being present our home for these next few days at least. And uh, the image that I come back to again and again, which I find really helpful, is, uh, is the image of all I'm doing in this willingness to be present is I'm just a door person. So there I am, I'm a door person, let's say at a hotel. And I just need to do one thing, I just need to open up the door to all the guests who are coming to the, to the hotel. 
I just need to greet them. That's all I need to do. It's really that simple. All a door person does is open the door to the guests that are coming through. All the guests that are moving through your moment-to-moment experience. So I want to point out what the door person doesn't do, what's not part of the job description, which is important because it's amazing the things that we add to the job description that aren't there. So when a guest comes, you're not supposed to close the door on them. (laughs) So it's really important. (laughs) Because, man, it's amazing. Like, I knew that wasn't part of the job description, but it's amazing how many days of so many guests that I tried to close the door, door on. But being a door person is different. It's keeping the door open to all the guests, the ones you like, the ones you don't like. But it's not only uh, not closing the door on all the guests that are coming through, it's also not following the guests into the hotel. So it's not like, oh, wow, this is such a cool guest. I'm going to go have dinner with them not in the restaurant. Maybe have a few drinks at the bar with them. (laughs) That's not being the door person. Because there I am, I'm in the restaurant having this conversation with this guest, you know, for who knows how long. And then I've forgotten the role of being the door person. And maybe some of you, I don't know, maybe you've found yourself in the restaurant today at times or closing the door. So just that, just being the door person, just for this retreat. Moment after moment after moment. Just the willingness to do that. So there's another aspect of this this image or this analogy that's really important to remember. And that's that it's a bad analogy. So I just gave you a really bad analogy for being present. (laughs) So tomorrow when you try to remember what you're supposed to do, it's to be a door person, but to also remember... I'm going to be a door person, but I have to remember that it's a bad analogy that Brian gave us. It's such a bad analogy that he gave us. What is he thinking? (laughs) Why is it a bad analogy? How is it a bad analogy? Because part of the willingness to be present is that, that often when I find myself in the restaurant, having the meal, that I can be the door person to that too. I can be aware of that too. Oh, interesting. Having the meal with the guests. Oh, this too is my practice, just to see that. Because when there's the scene of that, I'm back at the door. Or when there's the scene of the activity of the mind of trying to shut the door on the guest person, that too is being present. So this is important because what happens so often is that I notice my mind shutting the door and then it's like, damn it, I'm not the door person anymore. Like, I'm not getting it right. I just need to see that. That's the activity of the mind. So starting to notice how the door person is relating to these guests. And there's going to be just a few different options how the door person is going to be with, with how it relates, relates to moment-to-moment experience. Either it's going to be, the door person is just going to be there at the door. You're just going to be noticing the feeling of the abdomen rising, falling, feeling the breath, hearing a sound, noticing an emotion arise and pass away, noticing that thinking is going on. There you are, right at the door. So that's one stance to get familiar with that. But also to notice that it's going to be, the door person is going to be shutting the door at times. It's going to be pushing experience away. Or it's going to be grasping on to experience. It's going to be in the restaurant. Or the door person is just going to be checked out. 
like asleep at the door. <laughs> to notice these, these four stances that we have to, to experience, being present, pushing the experience away, grasping on to experience, or grasping, or, 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 or checking out. Becoming familiar, not only with the guests, but how the mind is relating to the guests. This is really the heart of the practice. Just this you know, is, is, is the heart of what we're doing. This is the willingness to be present, being the door person. And remembering it's a bad analogy. Also, what can help be with being uh, the door person that I want to point out, and I've kind of alluded to this already at times, is to note, to label what's going on. So at times in my med- meditation practice, I'm, I'm, I'm noting, oh, uh, breathing in, out, or expanding, contracting when I'm feeling the breath, because it allows the mind to, to start to collect around an experience, to feel into an experience. When there's a sound that happens that pulls the mind away from uh, the breath. Oh, hearing is happening. Just labeling hearing. When there's a pain in the knee, oh, pain. You might want to label the, 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 um, the qualities of it. It's pulsing, it's stabbing, it's dull, it's sharp pain. To actually make these mental labels because it helps, it helps clarify, sharpen um, this, this activity of being the door person. And we'll probably get into this you know, more and more as we go on. But I find the the labeling, and it can be so clunky at first and difficult to get used to, but it really does help sharpen mindfulness. So to play with it, don't worry if you're getting the right label or not. It's just starting to get a feel of what it is to name what you're experiencing, just using one or two words, keeping it simple. So how does this work? How does this lead to our freedom? How does it lead to actually being here for our lives? This willingness to be present, just this one thing, being the door person. And I want to share with you some words from Ajahn Chah, the the great Thai forest uh, meditation monastic. And he gives this example. He says, suppose at home you have a pet monkey. That's what I love about Ajahn Chah. He always gives the earthy examples. They're great. So suppose at home you have a pet monkey. And, you know, monkeys don't stay still for long. They like to jump around and grab onto things. That's how monkeys are. Now you come to the retreat and you see the monkey here. And this monkey doesn't stay still either. It jumps around just the same. But it doesn't bother you, does it? Why doesn't it bother you? Because you've raised a monkey before. You know what they're like. And if you, just, if you know just one monkey, no matter how many places you go to, no matter how many monkeys you see, you won't be bothered by them, will you? This is one who understands monkeys. If we understand monkeys, then we won't become a monkey. If you don't understand monkeys, you may become a monkey yourself. Do you understand? 
when you see it reaching for this and for that, you shout, hey, you get angry. You say, that damn monkey. But this is one who doesn't know m monkeys. One who knows monkeys sees that the monkey at home and the monkey at the retreat are just the same. Why should you be annoyed by them? And when you see what monkeys are like, that's enough. Then you can be at peace. It's really that simple. It's just to see, to see the monkey of this mind. Just being the door person, just to see it. Because it's in the scene that freedom arises. Because th then I'm not getting angry. I'm not hooked by the monkey. So you're starting to get a sense of this is all we're doing is just trying to see, trying to notice the unfolding of experience. And within that lies the freedom. Because when I can start to see kind of maybe the feeling of sadness arise and then I notice maybe a, a reactivity around it or a pushing around it, just seeing that there's a, a bit more space around it. It doesn't even have to disappear just to notice that. Or the sleepiness or the agitation, just to notice that experience arising, to witness it can give space around the experience. So I'm not even trying to get rid of the monkey, just trying to see it. This is this willingness to be present. So again, this is what we're doing here, this, this one thing, the willingness to be present, the why, a taste of freedom in our lives. And now how to hold this practice that leads to freedom. So a few reflections on this. There's a, a discourse uh, by the Buddha where he's talking about different ways that individual practice, uh, individuals practice and the kind of different visions that they have for practice. And he upholds this one particular way of practicing or way of holding the, this path. He says that it's the, the individual who practices for their own benefit and for the benefit of others. This, this practitioner is the foremost, the chief the most outstanding, the highest, and the supreme. To practice for ourselves, but not only for ourselves, for others. And I, I found that this is really essential for what we're doing here, this practice, that it's, it's not just about me and my life. It's something that's much, much broader than that. Seeing that, that how my taste of freedom, my liberation, my freedom is intertwined with others' freedom. And I think this is important also given the kind of momentum that happens in at least dominant society here in this country. There's a, there's a wonderful title of an essay by uh, C.W. Huntington, Sandy Huntington. 
called the, uh, and he's critiquing kind of mindfulness in, in our uh, culture. And the title he gives it, I don't completely disagree with, agree with the, 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 the content, but it's a great title. He says it's the, uh, the critique he gives is that, that it's the rise of the triumph of narcissism. And, and I think there's something really important about just him naming that. That there can be this propensity that, that, that so wrapped up in myself. That what we're doing here, it's important to hold it more broadly. And this is tricky, right? Because what the Buddha said, the foremost practitioner is not just one who's practicing for others, but for oneself as well. So I'm not asking you to, to dismiss your life in any kind of way, but just to broaden it. And we're going to be doing the same exact thing. It's really checking out how this mind works. But I find it's important about how I'm holding what we're doing here. I want to become curious about the dynamic of suffering in this mind and body to, to, the, to the minute di- detail, but to hold it in a, in a very particular way. And this, this intention flowers in later Buddhism, which you find in Mahayana Buddhism. It's this quality of heart called bodhicitta, this quality of really practicing for the benefit of, of oneself and others. And, it, and any of you who've been exposed to traditional Tibetan Buddhism know that this is, this is the beginning point and it is the foundation for the understanding of the path. For example, I had a, a, a friend who, uh, for many, many years, much of his life he practiced uh, uh, in the Tibetan tradition and he had come on a Vipassana retreat like this. And, and in the Tibetan tradition, you start any kind of formal sitting meditation practice with placing an altruistic intention for what you're doing. So he comes out of a Vipassana retreat like this and we, there's no formality of doing that. And he's like, he thought it was crazy. It was just so disturbing to him to be in a space where this isn't being uh, uh, done in some kind of manner. And it was, uh, it was great to get his perspective. And for me, I have to agree with him. <laughs> there's something about bringing that into our space here together. And one caveat about this, I meant to mention this a little bit earlier, but I will now. To remember, just when I'm sharing reflections, really in any Dharma talk, that um, I, I'm sharing with you just one description, one, one expression of this path. And, and you have a particular job uh, in, in terms of listening, is to see how it fits for you, and if it fits or doesn't fit. So I'm just describing giving one description. And I distinguish this from giving you a prescription. When I prescribe something, it's something that you have to take. And I'm not, I'm not offering that to you. I'm offering something for you to reflect on and to see if it fits into your practice. And this is important in terms of us learning how to um, come to this path in a way that really works for us. Uh, and I think it's important just in terms of religious traditions because there might be many people out, out there in some ways kind of like me where we've been confronted by a religious tradition and there's been so many things prescribed to us, there's a kind of wounding that happens around that. that just because of the unskillfulness of, I think, the dynamics of power that happens in spiritual traditions. So hopefully this is something different that, uh, that I'm offering you descriptions, not prescriptions. And this is in that same vein.
And I think one way this this helps for me is getting starting to get a feeling sense that um, uh, the sense that that when I'm here on retreat, even just practicing in this kind of in this space of being together yet alone, that it's still a, an opportunity to give my practice as a gift to the greater world. So how does this work? How can we understand this sense of giving our practice? Because here we are. We just can feel like we're on our on our own. It can feel so disconnected. So I want to give an example of what you're doing here and how it reaches much farther than just our own lives. And there's a story of, really a story of healing that, that um, I think fits so well with what we're doing here. And it's about a woman I was working with. Um, I used to do, not so much now, but uh, uh, a lot of trauma work with individuals. And this is an individual who came to me who was really in the cycle of, of uh, many abusive relationships and over time began to heal and started to step out of this, this really uh, destructive cycle. And as she started to step out of it and, and really started to come into really a different place into her life, this real beautiful healing started to happen, she started to have this really interesting sense of what she was doing. She said, she, she described to me that, that it felt like the healing that she was doing was stretching back, uh, back in the past for generations. Because what she realized that this, this dynamic that she was involved in had been going on intergenerationally for so long. So really, really this, this, this deep wound that, that in, in many ways was so much bigger than her own life. And she started to have this, this feeling of stopping a dynamic that had been going on for so long, for so many generations. And given how she was situated, she actually started to have these really striking dreams where she was um, visited uh, by many of her ancestors, women in her lineage, that would uh, be coming to her in her dreams and actually thanking her for the work that she was doing because it was healing them in, in many ways. What we're doing here stretches so much farther than just our own life. What a powerful thing to start to get a sense of what you're addressing here might, might be going back for generations. To actually bring an end to it, to not pass that on to others or to children or to family and friends. That's why what we're doing here expands so much farther than just our own lives. I think it gives a, a, a yet another understanding for another, you find, primary teaching that you find in early Buddhism around rebirth, which can be sometimes difficult for modern people to navigate but it can give new meaning to the idea of ending rebirth. And so I want to share with you, you know, maybe one way of understanding this and to piece some things together. Somebody once asked the, the Tibetan teacher at Chogyam Trungpa, what gets reborn? And he says, he said, your bad habits. <laughs> Wouldn't it be wonderful to, to, um, uh, put an end to uh, the rebirth of your bad habits. What a, what a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. Hallelujah, right? Amen.
to not pass them on in terms of the society that we live in. And if you think of yourself as just in terms of societally, right? It's amazing how this mind has been conditioned by society. You know, as it said, you know, you're not thinking your thoughts, you're thinking society's thoughts. What a beautiful thing to, to make sure that, that that no longer gets reborn. And I think w- whether you take rebirth in this more poetic way that might have a, a resonance for you or literally, I think it gives power to this, this passage from the Buddha when he asked the, uh, his monastics this, this question. He says, what do you think, bhikkhus, or monastics? Which is more, the stream of tears that you have shed as you've roamed and wandered on through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable. This, or the water in the four great oceans. And then the monastics reply, they say, oh, as we understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, the stream of tears that we have shed as we roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, this alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. What a powerful thing to bring an end to, whether it be intergenerationally or within our own lives. This is our service to the world, to the troubled yet beautiful world that we live in. And I know for me, you know, especially during the, the, sometimes the, the dark days of my practice, it's really been the, the shining light that's kept me going. I know there was a time, it seems like it was quite a while, a long time, phase of this, but there was a time when I was a monk, as a, a Zen monk, where it was just, there was just a very dark period. It was that, that kind of that feeling, and maybe some of you know it, where you're going through the the motions of living, but it doesn't feel like you're living. There's almost like a, a kind of almost a plastic quality or not even really being there, but still going through the motions. And, and I, I felt so confined by myself. And really one of the things that allowed me to continue and to begin to step out of that was this, just this intention, this intention of, of having this practice being for the benefit of all beings. Of, of touching into that's much greater than, than my own life and includes my life. So practically how to engage in this, if you want, again, this is, you have to get a sense of what fits for you and what doesn't fit for you. This is what I do on retreat is uh, sometimes it's great just to do this. Some people just do this once, you know, maybe in the early morning sit or in the, the, the sit we do um, in the mid-morning together of just placing one intention. May my practice today go, go to the benefit of all beings. And then that's it. I, I don't think about it. It's just like, right, I, I took maybe five or ten seconds to kind of say that at the beginning of a sit. 
Or sometimes what I'll do is I do that at the beginning of, of each sit. Another time that I do it, it is, is when I'm bowing at the end of a sit, because it's easy, easier for me because there's a, a bodily expression that goes with it, is that when I'm bowing, I'm, I'm uh, saying to myself, may, may this practice session that just happened, may it go to the benefit of all beings. And even if, if my mind wandered the entire time, or I completely fantasized about getting back at my enemy in some kind of way, <laughs> it still counts, right? Because it's the willingness to be present. That's the cool thing about the willingness to be present. It's just, I, I, was, I, I was willing to show up. There's a little bit of <laughs> juice there, and I can, I can say, oh, may this go for the benefit of all beings. And what does that uh, do for our practice? And what I find is that over time, it's not like it's going to happen instantly, but as, as I do that over time, it changes how I hold this path and this practice. It changes how I am with it. There's a different visceral feeling that starts to emerge that feels so much broader and more spacious and, and really more compelling. So you might want to try that. You know, and at times I might remind you just to put forth an altruistic intention and then to drop it. And then over time, maybe in a few weeks or a few months, to check in, what's that like for you? And then I'd like to end with a, an expression of this quality of bodhicitta, of practicing for the benefit of all beings. And it's a, uh, it comes from the Tibetan tradition. It's a dedication to red Tara. So we have an image of white Tara back there uh, on the wall. And uh, uh, another a manifestation of uh, Tara is red Tara, which is all these deities of Tara are uh, manifestations of compassion. Mm. So I'd like to share this with you. And to remember, you know, this Tibetan Buddhism is always over the top, which I love, you know. It's grandiose and spacious and beyond what we can imagine, which is so important to, to, uh, to, to find something that even goes beyond maybe even what we can imagine. And it goes, throughout my many lives and until this moment, whatever virtue I have accomplished including the merit generated by this practice and all that I ever will attain from this practice. This I offer, I make an offering of it for the welfare of all sentient beings. May sickness, war, famine, and suffering be decreased for every living being while their wisdom and compassion increase in this and in every future life. And may I clearly perceive all experiences to be as insubstantial as the dream fabric of the night and instantly awaken to perceive the pure wisdom display and the arising of every phenomenon. May I quickly attain awakening in order to work ceaselessly for the liberation of all sentient beings. May these reflections tonight go to the benefit of all beings. Thank you. Let's just uh, sit for a minute here.